Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Forrest Pritchard at Stillwater Public Library. Forrest Pritchard is a seventh-generation farmer and New York Times best-selling memoirist. He is one of the nation's foremost experts on and champions of organic and sustainable farming practices. Pritchard's literary debut, Gaining Ground, chronicles his personal struggle to save his family farm in Virginia. His 2015 follow-up, Growing Tomorrow, A Farm-to-Table Journey, showcases the remarkable stories of 18 sustainable farmers across the country who are changing the way we eat. Several live and work here in Minnesota. Club Book is pleased to host Pritchard and Stillwater in conjunction with the 2016 St. Croix Valley Big Read, co-sponsored by Stillwater Public Library and ArtReach St. Croix. The featured title is Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, a classic novel replete with the cautionary lessons about the price of poor stewardship of our agriculture resources and a favorite for Forrest Pritchard. Pritchard makes use of slides in this discussion. If you are interested, you can find these online at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Forrest Pritchard. Thank you. Um, thank you to Stillwater Library. Uh, what a resource you guys have here from the uh, Art Deco uh, remnants kind of heritage of the library to this beautiful 2006 edition that I understand. Um, amazing to have the library as a place for community to interact. And here we are on a Tuesday night. Uh, I'm coming from Washington, D.C. And um, I'm a full-time farmer outside, uh, about an hour outside of Washington, D.C. in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, when I was in college, <clears throat> I was an English major at the College of William & Mary, a public school in, uh, in Virginia, and uh, knew I wanted to write, also knew I wanted to farm. Uh, I've had the fortune of kind of uh, melding those two opportunities. But I read Grapes of Wrath on my own, uh, probably when I was about 20, 21. But more impactful, that was certainly impactful, uh, I was already on that farming trajectory at that point, so um, I didn't need like more farming material. I think at that point I was surrounded by it. So I did read Travels with Charlie, another really well-known Steinbeck book, uh, which was much more of a national story. Uh, so often we think about Steinbeck, we think about California, Cannery Row, The Red Pony, um, you know, Grapes of Wrath, et cetera, et cetera, East of Eden. Um, and I actually had the chance to end up in Salinas uh, just by, almost by accident last year. 
uh, where there's a wonderful John Steinbeck uh, museum, if you ever get the chance to stop in Salinas. Um, and I got to thinking about Travels with Charlie, how impactful that was, and that was deeply, kind of subliminally uh, latent as I conceptualized this second book, uh, Growing Tomorrow, uh, which is for, uh, for sale back here with Carol. Uh, I'd be happy to sign those later on. Um, but I didn't really think about that. It was just kind of hidden until I started thinking about uh, what was my connection to Steinbeck. Um, so yeah, I'm going to do a little reading later on about uh, a local Minnesota farm, um, and I think that will be a lot of fun. As I travel around, as I now get the opportunity to do so, I'm a, like I said, I'm a full-time organic farmer. I still make my living doing six farmers markets each weekend in the Washington, D.C. metro area. We, we do three on Saturday, three on Sunday. Uh, to give you a little idea of where I am in the northern Shenandoah Valley, beautiful, beautiful place, well worth saving, uh, which is what we try to do. Um, just near Harper's Ferry, kind of where the Civil War kicked off, that little diamond up there, of course, is Washington, D.C. And this is my farm, 500 acres of grass. I'm a, I'm a livestock farmer, pastured, pastured livestock, sheep, cattle, chickens, and pigs. Um, and as I travel around, I'm kind of a farm nerd, right? So I wanted to share with you, I was trying to make comparisons. In the Shenandoah Valley, for example, we get 39 inches of rainfall, um, I guess just a, a little bit further west in Minneapolis. I know you guys are in, in for some rain. You get 32 inches, and I found it really curious um, that you, your chance of purple rain actually is about 45% all the time. Um, so I found that worth sharing. Um, so what is it about family farms uh, from Steinbeck uh, documenting the, the, you know, the trans, transcontinental journey of one farming family uh, to a farm family uh, all the way across on the other side of the country? Um, what is this idea that family farms are worth saving? Is it nostalgic? Is it, and this is my farm by the way, that's the Blue Ridge Mountain uh, there in the background. Um, and this is a wonderfully photogenic picture of Buttercup, which is, takes a beautiful picture, but the cows don't want to eat it at all. Kind of ironic. Um, what is it, especially with the rise of farmers markets, the rise of farm-to-table restaurants, the rise of CSAs, the rise of Whole Foods, um, all these things, um, why why are we so, why is this so emblematic of, of what we want to see in our communities? All right, and this is kind of a question I'm going to dig into a little bit tonight. And when I started farming in, at 21, 22, I came out with an English degree and knowing that I didn't really know anything about farming other than having grown up on the farm, um, I did what I thought was right in 1996, uh, which was collaborate with a local farmer, plant GMO uh, corn and soybeans, take these pastures, this picture was taken just about a year ago, and uh, herb, spray them all off with herbicide, kill them off, and plant corn and soybeans. And we thought we were doing very right. We thought we were being progressive. Uh, we thought that was the way to make money uh, if we were going to succeed. And that first year, we spent uh, you know, six months waiting for the harvest to come in, and we reasonably thought that we could make a profit, a shared profit of $10,000 a piece. I didn't say $50,000, I didn't say $100,000, I didn't say a million dollars. I said $10,000 a piece, enough for a 22-year-old farmer to get his feet on the ground, enough for an established farmer who knew what he was doing uh, to make a little bit of a profit, make it worth his while. And then I could kind of you know, pay the taxes and the, and the insurance and move forward and get some experience. Well, when October rolled around and that farmer came, he kind of came uh, to the farm with his hat in his hand and a check. 
And we said, well, how'd the numbers work out? Because he was handling all the financing. Did we make the $10,000? No, we didn't make $10,000. Well, did we make the minimum $8,000 that we thought very conservatively uh, would be a reasonable expectation? No, we didn't make $8,000. Well, how did it work out? Well, he said embarrassedly, we made 1816. Well, five, tr five tractor trailer loads of corn and soybean had rolled off of our farm for $1,816. And we said, well, how could that possibly be? And he shook his head, really embarrassed. He said, it wasn't $1,816, it was $18.16 that we made. Now, I know there's a lot of ways to lose money in farming. You know, and I know the old joke, how do you make a million in farming? Start with two million, right? <laughs> but all kidding aside, it really reinforced all the negative voices as a 21-year-old in 1996 uh, that I'd heard from my agricultural peers, from my community at large. You've got a degree from university, go get a real job, you know, as if producing food for our community isn't a real job. And that's how Gaining Ground started out. Uh, that's the first chapter of Gaining Ground. It gets much funnier after that. Um, you've heard of uh, slow food. I call this the world's first really slow book. Uh, because it took two years to hit the New York Times bestseller list. Um, but with that momentum, I, I reached into doing Growing Tomorrow and uh, told more of a national farming story. So it's not so much, I don't think that the customer demand, this is looking west with the beautiful thunder, thunder clouds coming in to, to soak, soak my farm with nourishing rain. I don't think it's so much the momentum from the consumer standpoint, the desire, the nostalgia, uh, that we have for family farms, it determines more to a question, I think, to the producers. What's in it for the farmers? What's in it for the farmers to take that risk, to transition from a commodity-based, uh, you know, uh, industry, for lack of a better word, uh, that does reliably, you know, put in this herbicide and put in that seed and that amount of fertilizer, and depending on what the commodity prices are, you get X out of the back end. Uh, what would make a farmer want to go organic? What would make them want to take that chance to show up? every weekend at farmer's market or, or do all that legwork. After all, it's very risky uh, what we do, right? It's the, the labor is 365 days a year. It's grueling, it's physically intensive, uh, it's very tiring, you know. It's capital intensive. I happened to uh, grow up on a farm that was debt free, uh, aside from having no infrastructure, no fences, things like that. Uh, but even uh, people that come in to uh, buy a farm with all the infrastructure, then you've got debt. It's, there's no easy way around the uh, capital requirements. And last but not least, uh, slow food is this wonderful thing, wonderfully emblematic word that represents what we grow. It's nutrition dense, it takes time, but it's just that, it's slow. It takes longer for me to grow a grass-fed steer properly and not rush it to market. Uh, it takes more uh, soil fertility. Um, and, you know, investment of our time to grow this kind of food that we all know tastes better, we want it, it's fresher, okay? But there's all these things that the producer has to take into consideration. And yet, okay, we all know what the, the, these signs look like, right? Farm for sale. And yet, we all feel the same way when we see these signs go up, and always the next sign after you see that one is this one, right? You know what I mean? Um, and then, the farm, ironically, uh, the subdivision gets named after where the former farm had been, right? And uh, this is what we grow at this point. Uh, these are 15-acre lawns. These are outside of Tyson's Corner, uh, Virginia, but they're all over the country, right? Where we're farming, farming big, uh, big uh, lawns, right? And yet, as I'm driving home from farmer's market, this is right on a turn. This is a portion of our livestock. We raised several hundred 
grass-finished steers and, and, and lambs each year. Uh, and yet, as I'm coming home, I often have to stop and hit the brakes because someone in a BMW or an Audi right, is leaning out the window taking a picture of my farm, presumably because they think it's beautiful, that it's worth taking a picture of, all right? Um, as opposed to the main reality of where our food comes from, uh, which is uh, confinement animal feedlot operations. And I'm not gonna cast any aspersions. I'm not pro or con or against or for anything here. I'm just laying out where our food system is uh, in 2016, right? Uh, and 97% of our, our, our food still comes from systems like this, where the only greenery you're gonna see in here is a 10 foot tall privacy fence right down at the bottom, right? Uh, that bar, that uh, razor wire isn't to keep the animals in, it's keeping journalists uh, out, right? right? And we don't see these places, we usually smell them, right? We're going down uh, I-35 or, or on the west coast, I-5 or I-95, all the way out where I am, and uh, some terrible smell comes in and we turn on the air conditioning and roll up the windows, and uh, you know, we listen to some Fleetwood Mac, and pretty soon the smell is gone. Right? We kind of forget about it, but that's where that smell is coming from. It's nature out of balance. Um, and our food system, I grew up uh, on, on my grandparents' farm, and they took priority on growing the freshest, most authentic, uh, you know, wonderful food. Apples, cattle, uh, corn, wheat, uh, cherries. But all this food ultimately ended up on the back of a truck and was sent down the road to a processor. It's a commodity, commodity, right? Uh, trading places with Dan Aykroyd and, and Eddie Murphy, right? And so basically, I kind of figured out a while back when I started doing farmer's markets in my early 20s that what my grandparents did, they participated in a system that created food with an identity that was then sold, stripped of its identity, and rebranded into an uh, entirely new identity. Uh, so it's, you know, it's kind of this really strange system. And it's rebranded, and these are games you can start to play at home if you're already not already doing these out in the real world. Right? It's, uh, it's, uh, they don't mean anything. It's like nonsense once you start to be able to see through the haze of it. And so here's what a picture that's kind of very, uh, you know, artistically frames all this. This is a restaurant depot where restaurants shop uh, to get food. Uh, these are brands we can trust, we're boldly told, uh, using words that don't really mean anything. They're authentic. It's supreme. It's superior. Um, what do we know? What does that tell us about anything? It's genuinely better. It's juicy and flavorful. Uh, God bless that the colors uh, of these weird gummy worms are derived from natural sources. Right? We need to be told that this weird-looking food from Mars uh, it comes from natural sources. Right? So kind of let these pictures stick on, your, stick on your eyes for a second. In a world where we're constantly upheld freshness uh, and variety, okay, uh, what we're actually given most of the time is artificial flavoring. Right? And, uh, and processed shelf life in the form of Slim Jims. Um, no accident, these, these color schemes are, are evocative of, uh, of bouquets of flowers, right? And I think it's really funny to kind of track uh, five-hour energy. So we eat all this food and it makes us so tired, it makes us so run down, we don't sleep well, right? And five-hour energy is, is really funny because if you look, this is 2001, this is 2006, and this is now 2015-ish uh, five-hour energy extra. If you look at the guy's foot, uh, he's getting further and further off the ground <laughs> every five years, right? Uh, pretty subliminal there. But this is something I just found at my local convenience store. This is a new five-hour energy. Uh, this is the old 
1.93 ounce bottle, which gives us five, and now they've got this, this bigger one, uh, which is 6.2 ounces over here. I did the math for every uh, ounce, for every third of an ounce, it gives you one hour of energy. Uh, this new one gives you 16.3, that's too much energy. <laughs> that's too much. No, nobody needs that much energy. You know? That's just enough time for you to go to bed and wake up and pound some more five-hour energy. Uh, truth in advertising, we got, I don't know if you guys have monster energy drinks out here, but I saw this one, it says monster rehab. Uh, presumably, you take this to rehabilitate. It's truthful because if you drink this stuff, you're gonna have to go to rehab uh, when you're done, right? By the time it's all said and done. So I walk into any Walmart or Target or you know, uh, Costco or Sam's Club in the country, and I see signs like this out front, uh, which are intended to feed our consumer need to buy, 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 like, like, like. Right? While these prices are insane, they're so cheap, you would be crazy not to be buying this food. And yet, as a 41-year-old, looking back on my 21-year-old self, who took an $18 paycheck um, that was just enough to you know, buy some corn chips and some, and some soybean milk, right? Ironically, uh, I look at this and I say, yes, Weird Al Yankovic clone. Um, these prices are insane. And this is why we have arrived at a food system. This is the train that's carried us uh, towards cheap, cheap, cheap uh, and the consequences of that, right? And the, the, you know, we all know that. We know health consequences. We know a lot of consequences. But a, lot, a big consequence that doesn't get talked about is a missing generation of farmers, okay? Kids who didn't want to sign up for that lifestyle. And so a real easy litmus test to kind of like say, hey, is, you know, is this guy blowing smoke? Uh, try and make a, one of these sandwiches for a dollar. You know, try to do it. And I know there's economy of scale, right? You know, we're bringing in tractor trailers and stuff. Try and make it for 10 bucks. You know, raise a chicken, raise the lettuce, uh, raise, milk the cow, right? Uh, you know, try and do it for, for 20 bucks. You won't, you won't be able to do it, right? So it, it begs the question, uh, not why is organic so expensive? Uh, how in the world is this other stuff so cheap? Okay, and so what is this? This is any grocery store in America. Uh, this is where we are, where any farmer could have grown this uh, five miles away or 1,500 miles away. We have no idea of knowing. Uh, they have no idea of knowing. It's an anonymous, rebranded food system. So where do I come in with the kind of farming I do? I'm one of those rare farmers. Uh, out of 100% of farmers that are uh, growing, growing food, only about 1% are direct marketing at farmers markets, even though we've kind of been, become more of a more spokespeople, right? And so not to be too Hollywood or tidy about it, but going back to that original question, why do we love family farms? Um, why is this like a topic that is not political? You know, it, it, it transcends a lot of the other things that get us down in the weeds. I think it's for these three reasons. It's transparency and trust, that last word, truth, I put in italics, because hopefully everyone in here has their own brand of truth, their own version of truth. Uh, so we'll get back to that word in just a minute. But I want to take you through the first two real quickly. Uh, and as an English major, I should say, are we have any other English majors in here? All the way in the back? Amelia? Uh, well, what Amelia and I know that the rest of you guys don't know, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of, <laughs> is that on our English degrees, it says the holder of this document is now uh, qualified to write uh, mathematical equations in words. <laughs> so really simply, Really simply, uh, for any math majors down here, we know we're going to create value. I put that in parentheses. It creates a multiplier effect. 
Uh, right? So we're going to move on. Thanks for laughing. You're very kind. So that first word, transparency, uh, on our farm, for example, you have to, we have an honesty policy store. So besides farmer's markets, we have a local store where folks drive into our farm. There's a box where they can drop money in, take the product, and leave. And while they're doing that, they have to drive three quarters of a mile down our lane uh, past all the animals. Um, and, you know, they're not going to walk behind the barn and have an aha moment where I'm, you know, giving, applying ketchup on the backs of cows or something like that, right? Um, and not the least of which is our annual farm day where kids can come in and interact, and it's a very special moment for them. And these kids aren't going to go back and talk to their friends on the school bus the next day and say, hey, I created another level of Minecraft, or hey, I killed a bunch of uh, uh, video game zombies. They're going to be like, dude, I touched a pig right on the face <laughs> yesterday. And that's all any, any second grader really wants is to brag to their friends, right? Um, and that's the kind of transparency that I think uh, the family farm, uh, you know, really, really puts out there as opposed to uh, our current brand of transparency, right? I only got a couple gross out photos in here uh, where we can't even see uh, the end of the darkness on this from the light of the flashbulb or more appropriately are all the beef tenderloins uh, that we're enjoying uh, where the only thing transparent about this yeah, is the actual packaging, right? Uh, and the micro-branding down here that tells us, in case of a food recall, which one of six or seven major slaughterhouses only this meat would have come from, not from a local, not from a local slaughterhouse, right? Which builds us right into trust. Uh, we're going to miss John Stewart. I heard Trevor Noah's coming to Minneapolis in a couple weeks, though, or something like that. Um, so in case you've forgotten, uh, a couple years ago, we had a, 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 this thing called pink slime, which was ammonia-soaked centrifuge-separated byproduct paste. Uh, basically, the food industry realized that they could take all these scraps, uh, but bind them with ammonia, put them in a centrifuge, and create this shelf-stable slurry that didn't create lean meat. It took fatty meat and technically reduced the level of fat uh, from a ratio perspective, so they called it leaner. And we found out this was in something like 80 85% of every hamburger in the country. Right? Uh, about the same time as that, we found out that horse meat was being served all throughout Europe in, in presumable beef hamburgers. Right down the road from where I live uh, in Washington, D.C., GMO patent law was upheld uh, under the pretense that uh, private companies could take wild strain seeds and uh, make them private property. Uh, uh, pretty bizarre. That's pretty groundbreaking. I think it's a pretty wild precedent. In 33 food recalls, not every year, uh, not every decade, uh, every month in our country, we have 33 food recalls. Okay, so more than one food recall a day, um, which all just kind of builds into this idea of the trustworthiness, the desire, I think, uh, to put our trust in something like the family farm, or to grow it our own, grow, grow it on our own for that matter. Uh, getting back to pink slime, there was a quick update. Uh, you might have seen that the uh, a couple uh, politicians got together and put out uh, a dude it's beef shirt. I particularly love this picture of Rick Perry because it doesn't look like he's actually taking a bite. It's, it's like he's, sma <laughs> he's like smashing it up against his face for a photo opportunity. All right, and, uh, and puts it in a, nap a, nap a napkin for a handler, right? Uh, uh, St Stephen Colbert <laughs> did this one <laughs> wonderful parody. Right, it's just beef. Is this beef? No, no it's not. It's slime. Just call it what it is, right? So that last word is the trickiest of all, and I wouldn't presume to tell you what truth is. Uh, so I'm going to play another English major trick. 
and uh, take truth and call it balance temporarily and stick with me on this. So balance in our food system uh, can mean so many things. And we know that in a food system where even though when I started, local organic heritage, all these things was 0.1% of our food system, and we've now come up to arguably three and a half, four, pushing its 5% of our food system. Uh, that still means 96, 97% of our food system is industrial uh, commodity, uh, nutritionally compromised food, I would say at best. Uh, and nobody wants to watch that basketball game. Nobody wants to watch a 97 to three football game. You turn that off, you have mercy for your opponent at that point. And I think our food system is so much out of balance that we are screaming for mercy in a lot of ways, uh, parting to our better natures. Balance, uh, average age of a farmer in the United States, 58, 59 years old. In what industry, what job description is the average age of someone uh, 58, 59 years old if you're not a typewriter repairman or a pocket watch manufacturer, right? Uh, this is something that's vital, growing food for people. It should not be the average age of 58, 59 years old. Uh, for, I could go on and on. Uh, 1980, uh, the average farmer, if she was growing a dollar's worth of food, she would have gotten 30 cents. Today, about a 10, 10, 10 or 11 cents on the dollar. Okay, it goes on and on. Antibiotics, 80% doesn't go to humans, it goes to confinement livestock operations, right? Stop me now, please. Uh, so truth and balance, transparency and trust, I think this is what we get into uh, when we ask the question, why do we love family farms? And I now get the chance to travel around, uh, around the country, see lots of farms, uh, like in Growing Tomorrow. And I think everybody gets down to the same thing at the core, besides like the core of like, you know, shelter, food, and love, <laughs> right, like we all need. Uh, when it comes down to having a job, and we're in election cycle, so we're gonna hear about small businesses and the economy, ad nauseum as, we, as the year goes on. Uh, you give somebody a job, right, and you pay them for that job, number two. It's not just another crappy job, it's a paid job with the cost of living, right? But more importantly than that, that job that they get paid for uh, does something, uh, creates something that people love to do. It creates a contribution. It creates a sense of community, right? And that's a meaningful, that's a meaningful life. Uh, and I think that's what farming does. When we support our family farmers, when we have a family farm or, you know, and I, I use the word family farm, it's just I'm talking about old fashioned American heritage farms. Um, it connects us. It connects us right back to that human connection, uh, validates, validates a lot of our beliefs, I think, right? And so I've gotten to travel around and, and connect with a lot of people. This is Lloyd Nichols right side of Marengo, Illinois, frankly not too far from here with that wonderful black glacial soil that you guys have. Uh, a complete madman. <laughs> uh, grows 1,000 different varieties of fruits and vegetables. A former TWA employee got laid off, right, in 1986 and decided to become a farmer. Uh, Brandon and Susan Pollard in downtown Dallas, Texas don't own any land. They grow, uh, they raise bees on rooftops all throughout Dallas. They grow zip code honey. Uh, Abba Ifoima and Ross Diamina in D-Town in Detroit, again, don't own any land, uh, have seven acres in downtown Detroit for an annual rental fee of drum roll please, uh, $1 a year, all right? Seven acres in downtown Detroit. It goes on and on in the middle of uh, the Ozarks. Uh, Nicola McPherson grows hundreds of pounds of mushrooms each week right down the road, you know, not really not too far from here in Laurel, Iowa, uh, just due south of here. Uh, Steve Paul grows 100 acres of organic buckwheat, corn, soybeans in a sea of GMO 
uh, corn and soybeans. Um, and it just goes on and on, how, how we can think about producing. Uh, Nick Muto, a 33-year-old producer who's farming lobsters off, off of Cape Cod. And yet, right, and yet we're constantly told that the dialogue in the real world is on the left, kind of the hippie, crunchy, new agey guys, right, and the old renegade outlaw, old farmers who just no, are too old to give a care anymore, right? And there's no in-between. There's no in-between story. It's a story of extremes. And we're constantly told it'll never work. I was told it would never work, all right? And we're told by Wall Street, a conventional business, that it won't work. We're especially told uh, by mainstream agriculture, the biggest scare, uh, straw man of all, being that if we did this, the world would starve to death. Um, I'd like to argue while we're talking about specious arguments that the moon is made of cheese, too. Uh, of course it won't work because we're missing an entire generation of experienced producers, uh, but not because it won't work, right? And most impactfully of all, I think, uh, is our sweet, sweet blue-haired grannies. Uh, I had two of them that were very uh, dismissive of my farming dreams. But we love them, don't we? We love them so much. Right? Yeah, so it'll never work. Okay, well, let's just jump into some hard numbers, and these are all from USDA. Now, anyone in here who's a farmer or producer knows that the actual sales for certified organic is only a component of what actually happens out there. We have this wonderful system of bartering and sharing and giving each other tomatoes because we have too many of them. All right? uh, so we know that the actual numbers are far more robust than what's here. Uh, but just to give you a quick rundown, the U.S. sales in organics is now uh, more than 40 billion. Uh, these are the most recent numbers, but they've way exceeded 40 billion uh, as of last year. Uh, really interesting to note, and that's up from uh, 1 billion in 1990, 500% growth, right? Who would want to have 500% growth in the, in the Great Recession, right? Uh, note this blue chart, which is the actual the annual growth bar as opposed to the final revenues, and we'll come back to that in a minute because that's especially interesting. So what's $40 billion? What does that mean? It's a big number, right? Well, Tractor Supply Company, where I like to do a lot of my shopping uh, for, for my wardrobe, uh, is about $10 billion, $10 billion industry. Whole Foods, uh, big, the big green, right, is, uh, is $20 billion, and the biggest green of all, John Deere, is a $30 billion industry. So a real nice spectrum of different uh, ways of looking at, as an agricultural model, uh, not the least of which is another $40 billion industry uh, or business, which is Monsanto, all right? Uh, so real, really major numbers that we're talking about. And when you start to get up to numbers like that, uh, people really want a share, a piece of that action, as they say. Uh, so who's seen all the copycats, right? I'll take you through this real quick. Our we are, we have these tractor trailers going down the road. It says farmer's markets at the, it's the Harris Teeter uh, supermarkets. And they, you go in here, it says, you're welcome to the farmer's market. And uh, you know, they're proudly proclaiming their supermarket. You're a grocery store, okay? You're a grocery store. We have a wonderful decades old tradition now of grocery stores. Uh, you don't have to take this nice thing from us, this uh, farmer's market, and call yourself a, just call yourself a grocery store. People are still gonna shop with you. These are locally sourced apartments right outside of Washington, D.C., uh, purporting uh, pictures of uh, uh, peppers and basil, uh, presumably apartments made with doorknobs of of peppers and flooring made of arugula. I, I don't, I can assure you that people are still gonna live in your apartment without you also being a farmer's market. This is in downtown Austin, Texas, in the middle of Austin, Texas, 
where it says modern farm homes and it's called the orchard. Okay? Dude, you are the definition of a townhouse. You are a house in the middle of the town. Okay, you are not an orchard and you're not a farm home. Right? It's it's preposterous. This is in this is in Chicago, O'Hare. But this is in the Minneapolis airport. If you've been in Minneapolis airport, this is here. This is a farmer's market with pictures of carrots and eggplants and, and, and Shastas and Fantas being sold. Okay? You're not a farmer's market, you're a kiosk. Right? And sometimes... Sometimes things are just sad. $1.99. $1.99 banana. Right? So we're told that this stuff isn't going to work, and yet we know it's working when you start to see things like that. That's dead giveaway. All right. Uh, so what is this? This is called our economy, the rolling gross domestic product. Uh, down here, we're all not too uh, young to remember that this is what was called the Great Recession. Right? And some people would still argue that we're coming out of it. Um, that seems like healthy return to me. But it's especially interesting if you take that first chart and kind of superimpose it over top of there. Uh, in a world where we're told organic is, is trendy, it's too expensive, uh, you know, all, all these pejoratives associated with cost, at the bottom of the Great Recession, when we were losing you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs, um, when you know, uh, things were too big to fail, so we were having billion dollar bailouts from the government, uh, the organic movement quietly grew at 5%. It just continued right along. Yes, it dipped, okay? but it was growing at 5%. Incredible testament to what people are valuing, uh, how people are choosing to spend their money. Okay, but, but, but it'll never work. Well, this is the rise of farmer's markets, and I've driven from Minneapolis over to uh, Osceola, down to Stillwater today, and every little town I've gone through along the way says, uh, local farmer's market, farmer's market, farmer's market, right? Uh, up to the point where almost to 9,000 farmer's markets down and people say this is trendy. These are ancient, farmers markets are ancient. They're as old as there have been cities. They're, they're 10,000 you know, 10, years old, right? And these are the number of farmers markets uh, all over the country, right? Nice little, nice little cluster happening right up here where we are. Uh, CSA, uh, 10 years, how many people know what a CSA stands for, right? 10 years ago, would you have known what a CSA stood for? Probably less, probably less, probably some. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, and I'm an insider, I might not know what CSA stood for. I am from Virginia, so 150 years ago, CSA would have stood for something differently entirely, which is the Confederate States of America, but it's just a, it's just a southerner joke. Um, so this is kind of the greening of CSAs that have popped up. A nice little, little video, it kind of rolls there, right? So that's just showing that just stops at 2010. You know, we were really starting to hit some momentum in 2010. So I wouldn't be shocked if that was really densely green by now. So much enthusiasm, so much goodwill. Unless we forget, right? Farm to table restaurants, farm to table farms, uh, agritourism, urban farming, uh, buying clubs, so many opportunities for a 21 year old in 2016. This is a picture of my farmer's market, random snapshot on a sunny summer morning. Uh, don't think that these people don't have much better things to be doing uh, than uh, to be shopping at farmer's markets. There's a Whole Foods right around the corner. There's a Trader Joe's right around the corner. Uh, there's Friday nights that they presumably had, right? And they're up at 8 o'clock in the morning shopping at farmer's market, right? So again, going back to why do we love family farms and especially what's in it for the farmer? Uh, 
Uh, why do we do it when it's risky and it's grueling and, and it's slow, right? Well, we have to have a real check-in. I think once the numbers start to get this big, once, and the Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay Times actually just had an expose doing a farm-to-table investigation like two weeks ago, saying that you know, a huge percentage of farm-to-table restaurants were, sh were cutting corners, uh, putting farmers' names on stuff that the f they didn't even buy from. Right? So for the farmers at the, at the markets, the people that do direct sales, uh, we need to remain authentic and transparent. We have the customer's trust, and we need to maintain it. That's a covenant. Okay, and that means not just taking pictures with rainbows and butterflies outright, uh, but free-ranging in the snow, uh, letting the chickens do what we say that the chickens are going to do or whatever our method is. I photoshopped that snow on that round bell <laughs> back there. It's all, it's all just a big show game I play. <laughs> sustainability is one of those words that our eyes can kind of glaze over after a while. Oh, it's all organic. It's all sustainable. It's all local. Uh, we get word fatigue, right? Uh, but from a producer standpoint, sustainability is not just about environmentalism. It's about two other really important E's, uh, economics, right? Um, I can be fuzzy and loving and organic all day long, but at the end of the day, I've got to pay my bills. I've got to pay my employees, right? So that's where economics comes in. Last is uh, personal energy, E. The third E is energy, right? Uh, really easy to burn out, really easy to overextend ourselves, really easy to perceive ourselves as super farmer off to save the world, right? And uh, we need to do what, what's within ourselves. This idea of a lifestyle paycheck, anyone who has uh, been a farmer or has gardened uh, or grown a lot of their own food knows what the lifestyle paycheck is. It's this inexplicable uh, component that has really nothing to do with economics. It's fresh air. It's exercise. It's letting your kids outdoors and you know, yelling to them for dinner and you know they're going to show up. right? Uh, it's being able to fish and hunt on your own land. It's, it's, it's all these wonderful things uh, that we can't uh, uh, quantify, right? Customer connections, being able to look right across the aisle at a customer and have that honest exchange uh, is incredibly impactful. Seeing a kid grow up on the food that I raised is deeply spiritual. Uh, amazing to have that trust put in our product. And last but not least, and one of the reasons why I leave the farm in the hands of wonderfully trained employees that I'm very grateful to, but I'd frankly just rather be on the farm, I'm a farmer, right, is to promote a living wage for the next generation. I was one of those oddballs that was either too stupid or too stubborn uh, not to keep trying over and over again, and I was able to punch through a little bit. Uh, but so many young farmers now, like every 20, 21, 22-year-old, uh, comes out of college with their hair on fire, wanting to save the world, okay, let's, let's let them. Let's let them save the world. They're young, they're full of energy, they want to grow food for us. Let's provide them a living wage. Okay, so uh, right down the road uh, in, in Wisconsin, right, Aldo Leopold um, wrote in his seminal uh, Sand County Almanac uh, this wonderful quote. Cease being intimidated by the argument that a right action is impossible because it does not yield maximum profits, or that a wrong action should be condoned because it pays. Right? Here's my little contribution to that. History never remembers people who say it'll never work. I'll get around to it someday. Let somebody else do it. History remembers people who say, let's do it, and then they do. So I'd like to share with you real quickly and then do some Q&A uh, the first paragraph of Red Lake Nation, 
Red Lake Nation story, which is chapter 14 out of 18 American uh, sustainable farming stories in here. And then the last two paragraphs. So I'll let you guys figure out the middle, hopefully. Red Lake Nation food, Red Lake, Minnesota, wild rice. Near, near Bemidji, sorry, near Bemidji, Minnesota, the Mississippi River trickles from a single spring. In the distance, the water sparkles beneath an evening sun, twinkling like a lullaby, sing-song waves lapping a cadence against the reeded shores. Crossing the bridge on Highway 197, I pass Paul Bunyan and his ample ox. Two-ton indulgences commissioned by the Rotary Club circa 1937. Over the years, tourists have flooded the small parking lot, snapping pictures before pouring back into their cars. One lake down, I tell myself, 9,999 to go. Even on dry land, our lives remain circumscribed by water. And then I take you through a pretty fun tour of the wild rice production, uh, ending up with Harvey Roy, the, uh, the uh, tribal member of Red Lake Nation, uh, taking me from his warehouse. Harvey Roy leads me from the warehouse, and a short time later, we're standing on the banks of Lower Red Lake. Birdsong fills the air, yellow warblers and rose-breasted grosbeaks banking beneath colossal midsummer clouds. Wildflowers sway at our knees, crown vetch, heliotrope, belted clover drowsing in the afternoon sun. It's a quintessential July day, one you'd like to bottle and open on a frozen Midwestern night. Harvey gestures beyond the gentle waves, pointing, pointing to an invisible destination in the northern distance. He says, out on the peninsula separating the lakes, that's Ponema. It's the most traditional village in our nation. We have our annual Labor Day powwow there, four days long. It's huge, open to the public. People come from all over the country to see it. He pauses, studying the waves. We call ourselves the Anishinaabe, he volunteers at last, the original people. As I get older, I'm trying to learn more about my ancestry, more of my language. Two of my uncles are farmers, and if that's the direction I decide to go, then the tribe will provide the land. He nods, considering. There's a lot of opportunity up here, really. Minnesota is a Lakota phrase combining mini, water, with sota, sky-tinted. In a land of 10,000 lakes, rice is nature's link between water and heavens, earthly abundance reaching skyward in the wooded, eddying backwaters. The wind moves, and I imagine the sound of rice falling against birch bark canoes, clicks like raindrops on a hot summer day, echoes in a solitary canoe rippling through dark water. A paddle rises, flashing, stirring the silence. Along the sloping banks, generations of harvests await. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Forrest Pritchard and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read 
in the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering, throughout Pritchard's travels and conversations with farmers across the U.S., does he know why conventional farmers are opposed to, or hesitant to, transition to restorative practices? Yeah, um, I think um, I think that's a difficult difficult question because I think a lot of times uh, what I'm what I'm referring to as conventional farmers, and not in a negative way, uh, but just as a matter of delineating between two very different production models. Um, we might think that we're doing the right thing. You know, we might think that by applying a you know 10-10-10 NPK fertilizer that we're getting results. We might think that by herbiciding our pastures and checking uh, the results that the you know Iowa State, just pick a name out of a hat, uh, sends us back as our soil test results, that everything looks uh, hunky-dory. Uh, but we know now, uh, not only are there successful alternatives to that, uh, but we also know there's consequences to that. Uh, not only economic consequences, but huge environmental consequences uh, with a, a buildup of salts in the soil, uh, death on a bacterial or microorganism level, uh, things that we didn't have metrics for because we had no way of monetizing those things. There's no solution for a salesman uh, to sell us. So I think it's not that uh, most farmers probably aren't environmentalists or don't want to uh, protect their land. I think uh, all farmers are deeply, uh, you know, proud, if, to pick a, pick a word, um, that uh, I think is appropriate of what, of what we do, that we grow food. Um, but we might not either have been subjected to the alternatives, to realize that they are as successful as they're purported to be, or we might just be unaware um, that the uh, solutions that we find by solving it with a $20 bill or a $100 bill have the long-term impact um, that might not make our farms as productive uh, for the next generation. I think that's pretty, pretty clear. Um, in a lot of ways. But, you know, uh, conventional farmers out there are recognizing the value of cover crops, for example, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, they're recognizing the value of uh, not having their soil go into the Mississippi River and end up in the, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, Chesapeake Bay, where I am, right? Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons. A lot of them are just as simple as psychology, frankly. Our next audience member wonders about the role of farming policy in relation to farming practices. Living outside of Washington, D.C., I, I get inundated with that, so I try to forget it as much as possible. Uh, there was a farmer in France uh, who famously said uh, the solution to agriculture in America uh, could be fixed uh, with one vote uh, by cutting subsidies uh, if any politicians never wanted to get voted back in in the next election cycle, right? Um, you know, and that's fine. We. Uh, there are plenty of renegade and, uh, you know, uh, farmers for all sorts of reasons that don't take subsidies. Um, you know, one of the big reasons why our food is so expensive is because it's subsidized out the gate with uh, subsidized fuel and, and depressed, depressed land prices, taxation, things like that, uh, uh, crop insurance. Um, so, yeah, these are things that could immediately uh, be remedied. Um, not the least of which is the vast majority of this food is going not for human food, uh, but for, you know, confinement, livestock feed, and fuel, right? This question asker inquires about the difference in capital investment between Pritchard's farming and traditional conventional farming, and what the barriers are to transitioning. 
Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to answer that is give me a thousand different farmers. I'll give you a thousand different responses to that, and not to be coy, um, but it is it's deeply unique, I think. But there are, you know, with, uh, I think the, maybe the easiest way to answer that is to look at our farmer training system, which goes to the universities. Uh, so much from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up into the early 2000s was predicated on uh, confinement livestock systems, uh, uh, row crop, corn, soybeans, wheat, canola, uh, things of that nature, uh, orcharding, uh, and all with standard uh, one-size-fits-all solutions for the most part. Um, now we have a huge burgeoning rise in, at the University of Missouri and uh, Cal Davis and Penn State of sustainable agriculture programs. So we are getting some pushback on ways to like, kind of like turnkey systems. Um, so there might be more like, like level, uh, you know, level protocols. Uh, as a direct marketing farmer, what I really do is I manage inventory and relationships, right? So I'm always seeing what's on pasture, what's in the freezer, how are farmers markets doing, what are customers buying right now? Um, so it's one thing, you know, for me to be a farmer, but it's a different thing for me to be a farmer an hour outside of Washington, D.C., which is different for Red Lake Nation, which is an hour north of Bemidji, whose number one customer is Israel, right? They put out totes, uh, you know, a quarter the size of this room right here and put them on planes and send them halfway around the world, right? Uh, and yet they're still farming sustainably. You know, they're farming with practically zero chemicals uh, and farming in a way that ma makes them profitable. Um, so it's just going to totally vary. But fortunately, I think there's a leveling out of platforms on either side from a, a sustainable, not versus conventional, but as an alternative to conventional. Pritchard mentions a lost generation of farmers. Does he consider that his generation? And is he seeing a change? I think so. I mean, Hemingway famously coined that with, uh, he was the lost generation, right? Him and Fitzgerald and uh, T.S. Eliot and all those guys. Uh, or Gertrude Stein dubbed them that, I think, actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was a huge generation where the, I mean, we can pull up all this stuff as uh, census stuff, right? The average age of the American farmer is steadily gone all the way through the 1900s from 35 to 40 to 42 to 47 up to 58, wherever it is now. And I was born in 1974, so very much a part of that tradition where all the farmers around me are either old, retired, uh, or the farms are turned into subdivisions now. There's very little hyperbole in that. Huge, huge enthusiasm. Uh, rise, not only in the sustainable agriculture program, some of which I mentioned, there's more, many more than that, and many more that are just coming online. Uh, why? Because we now have successful track records that shows we can raise chickens on pasture and we can grow tomatoes, you know, here and there. Uh, but apprenticeships, internships, successful farmers who, you know, I'm, we're not talking about bringing in free labor, like sleeping in a tent and saying, like, work 12 hours a day for nothing. A paid, uh, uh, experientially rich uh, opportunities where then those people can go out, you know, and so it's that conundrum. Uh, how do you get a job if you don't have experience? How do you have experience if you don't have a job? Right? So you got to start with that uh, mentor-apprentice relationship, which is how all farmers have traditionally done it through sons or daughters and grandsons and granddaughters. Right? So this is kind of jumping that. And now we have that successful track record, and kids are able to take advantage of it. Kids, I'm talking like 22-year-olds, right? 
Our next question is if Pritchard interviewed anyone affected by the declining bee population crisis. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, both Brandon and Susan Pollard in downtown Dallas. So colony collapse nationwide is something like one in every three hives. Uh, just, you know, and colony collapse, in case folks don't know, that's the kind of mysterious uh, death of bees. And we, we think we, there's more reasons that we've been able to track it down for, for a decade. We didn't really understand what was happening. Uh, maybe we still don't. Uh, in Dallas, where they do spraying for West Nile virus, they do those aerial sprays, uh, colony collapses at 66%. So two out of three hives every year of theirs die. So what they do is they send out an alarm or some kind of tweet alarm. They usually do it in the middle of the night while people are asleep. They spray these things. So Brandon and Susan rush out. you got like an hour to prepare, and they go out to all their local hives and throw uh, tarps over them at like 2 o'clock in the morning uh, to keep them from getting insecticided. This question asker wonders what made Pritchard choose to market his products through farmers markets instead of other means. Yeah, in 1996-97, once we had that disastrous harvest, and again, you know, there's a lot of ways to screw up a harvest, but we sent out so much food. It wasn't from lack of, you know, actually growing stuff, right? Uh, I looked around, um, said, what, where can I kind of hit the reboot? Uh, and farmers markets were that kind of cultural intersection where um, customers were looking for good food and farmers were, had a destination. We weren't having to reinvent the wheel, right? I was already had such a steep learning curve in trying to, uh, you know, not only grow cattle and sheep and pigs and chickens, right, but to take that to the butcher and to market all that and, and to figure all that out. Uh, but now, you know, such, so many wonderful opportunities. Would I do that again? Right now I got like inertia kind of cooked into it. It's like a perpetual motion machine, right? Um, but yeah, I might very much load up the truck and just go to some, some restaurants, or I might just uh, do a CSA at this point, because I don't have that cultural, you know, I don't have to go up to everybody and say like, do you know what a CSA is? Can I introduce you to it? You know, uh, there are there, people are coming to us or whatever looking for CSAs. Our next question is if Pritchard sees social media playing a role in the success of small farms. Um, have you liked me on Twitter yet? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm pr probably hugely dropping the ball on some of that stuff. The, the amount of uh, clever, you know, cleverness and creativity that one can put out on social media to tell, us, to tell a story, to connect with people, is going to take you as far as there are people who want to make that connection, right? So there's more and more people that want to make that connection. That is how they interact with the world. And as any, a farmer uh, would be remiss uh, not to uh, pay attention to that, or they're just going to uh, avoid an easy opportunity to connect with an audience that is hungry for their product. Yeah, how you do that cleverly and, you know, I don't know. This audience member asks if there are many large corporate farms going organic. Oh yeah. Yeah, when you get, like I said, uh, there was some senator once who said, uh, and you know this quote probably as well as I do, a billion dollars here and a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money, you know? It's just like the douchebag quote of the century kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when you start getting into numbers like this, uh, you know, uh, McDonald's, for example, has been very proactive about starting to do like cage-free cage, cage -free chickens, you know, and uh, on and on. I think, per, I think Purdue, Purdue's been promoting some kind of a, uh, a certified, you know, chemical-free chicken or something. So, you know, and these are all, you know, not to, 
uh, be disparaging, but I think these are all kind of uh, Plato, Plato's shadows on the cave kind of thing. You know, we got what our ideal is, and all these other things are just kind of sh shadowy versions of uh, what the companies want us to think we want, you know. Uh, when what we really want is either stuff that we grow ourselves uh, or we know the farmer that's growing it. Our last question of the night comes from an audience member inquiring about the importance and advantages of owning land to farm versus renting or buying land. Wonderful question and incredibly important. Uh, for me, uh, growing up in an agricultural community, like so many farm kids, I wanted to get off the farm. Uh, you know, I wanted to go to the city, I wanted to see the world, all this stuff. And the more I saw that, the more I wanted to come home. But that was uh, where I originally started. A lot of farm kids don't do that. Um, so for me to have that land available to me was, uh, uh, was si like simultaneously a boon, a boon and, a, and a bane, I think. Uh, because, yeah, we owned it land free, or rent uh, 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 debt free, but our infrastructure was, was terrible. It hadn't had an upgrade since like 1945. You know, so I was in like the repair and maintenance mode of fences and I was chasing goats everywhere. And that's, I get into that with, with gaining ground. Um, but I think, I think you're absolutely right. My sense of stewardship, that heritage, uh, is really important to me now as a 41-year-old and increasing. Um, but I think that can be adopted. I think that can be a vicarious experience uh, for uh, young farmers, especially kids now in, that are far more likely to have grown up in the suburbs than have grown up on a farm. Um, and we have to bridge that as is being successfully done, not with the not with a target being land ownership, because frankly that can be a cinder block tied around the leg of somebody trying to swim. Uh, but to find that mentorship role as a surrogate with other established farmers uh, that, need, that don't have that generation whose children or grandchildren don't want to take over the farm, but that farmer still wants to teach, uh, still wants that young person, uh, that inner energy, somebody to take over. Um, and I'm not uh, sunshine and rainbows on this. This is happening tens of thousands of farms all over the country where landowners are making that bridge to make either long-term leases or some kind of uh, work to own a situation. Or as I mentioned earlier with uh, uh, Ross Diamina and Brandon Pollard and, and uh, Nick Muto who don't even own land. Uh, fishermen, uh, urban farm in Detroit and uh, beekeepers on rooftops. You know, there's ways to be farmers and producers without owning anything. So. I mean, ideally, I think that's, that's kind of the, the cultural trajectory that we've been on, is land ownership. Um, but with the price of land always marketed to what kind of big a house you can build on it, it's a game that's stacked against the farmer, I think. Well, thank you, guys. This Stillwater Public Library event with Forrest Pritchard will wrap up our 2016 Winter-Spring Club Book season. Make sure to check back with us in August as we announce our Fall 2016 lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes, so if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past five seasons, we have had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. 
Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.